Well, it's a bit of a unique day here at Otis Brown Podcast because I have a request. And it's even a more unique day because the request is that I do a podcast on jazz. The person who asked is one of my students, and she took a jazz and literature class with me, so she probably knows everything I have to say about jazz. But I will go ahead and give it a shot. Think about jazz, my relationship to it, and why it interests people, or why it doesn't interest people. Two of my favorite YouTube channels, one is Rick Beato. He's a a jazz educator and guitarist and record producer. And he talks about music in different ways. He's kind of an interesting guy. I don't really have the same taste in music with him except for in jazz. Um, But he has a recent live stream and he wonders why people don't like jazz. And I think it's an interesting question. He mentions that jazz does not have um, a kind of cultural relevance right now. And when he puts jazz in the title of his videos, they get very few views where he has, um, you know, millions of subscribers. It's a very large channel. Um, And so he has some interesting thoughts on why he thinks people don't like jazz. I I don't want to go into his categories. Um, I have my own thoughts on it that I'll share here. The other channel that interests me is uh, Amy Nolte Music. Amy Nolte's a piano player and singer, and she's a really talented person, and she has a really great channel. It's mostly instructional, and I I watch it and study jazz harmony and think about jazz through her. I regard her as my music teacher, though I'm sure she doesn't know me and I don't know her. Um, But she makes an interesting observation. She said that when she was a young pianist and performing, people would request songs and the older people would request jazz standards. And she knew all of them from her studies, of course. and now the old people request Beatles songs. And so that makes a lot of sense, actually. Rick Beato observes in his Why People Hate Jazz live stream that um, the Beatles have 11 platinum records and jazz as a genre only has 10. And several of them are compilation records, like there's one with Louis Armstrong Um, And it's a bunch of his songs compiled, I think, probably around the time. He started having a lot of his songs used on film soundtracks. I think with jazz, when we're thinking about it, and we're thinking about why people like it, or why people don't like it, or what it means to people, or what it doesn't mean to people, I think it's partly a factor of... It's a musical style that's designed to challenge you and challenge your expectations. And, and often at the most basic level in small combo jazz of the 1920s, starting with like Louis Armstrong's recordings and also in Kid Ory's recordings and, and uh, King Oliver's recordings, you hear um, a sort of plain statement of the melody at the beginning. And melody is something I think that a listener really understands. And then you would uh, experience a sort of modulation of that melody or a playing around with that melody, a different placement of the accent on the notes, uh, embellishment of the melody, and those things would sort of like establish a set of expectations and then unravel them. And I think that's the beauty of jazz. One thing that happens when you get later into it is that often the expectations that are being challenged are not in the composition, they're in the world. So for instance... 
jazz musicians have always been interested in playing standards. And the reason you play a standard is that you expect your audience to know it so that you can start your reimagining of it right at the beginning without having to state that. And you expect the audience to bring to it a certain kind of consciousness. And if they don't, then they will be lost in that conversation. And for some people, it doesn't seem to be worth the work to get up to speed in that conversation. So it, it, it becomes a music that requires a certain degree of study in order to participate in as a listener. I think it's also difficult to define what jazz is. Most people have heard the great Yogi Berra definition of jazz. Yogi Berra, I, I don't know if he was a genius or not, but he certainly said some interesting things. And he was asked by an interviewer one time if he can explain jazz. Said, Yogi, can you explain jazz? And he says, I can't, but I will, which is interesting on its own. Um, he says, 90% of all jazz is half improvisation. The other half is the part people play while others are playing something they never played with anyone who played that part. So if you play the wrong part, it's right. If you play the right part, it may be right if you play it wrong enough. But if you play it too right, it's wrong. The interviewer then says, I don't understand. And Yogi says, anyone who understands jazz knows that you can't understand it. It's too complicated. That's why it's so simple. At any rate, it points to the complexity and the difficulty of definition that sometimes troubles some listeners. Um, I think also it's interesting that jazz has so permeated other art forms. Hip-hop phrasing borrows so directly from jazz. Soul music and rhythm and blues really sort of incorporates so many elements of jazz, particularly um, its harmonic movement with like major seventh chords, minor substitutions. Um, even country music, of course, um, assimilated a tremendous amount of the swing feel and the swing vocabulary in the 1940s and the 1950s. Bands like Bob Wells' as Texas Playboys were, were really playing, uh, you know, jazz on stringed instruments combined with, with other elements. And so partly um, people do like jazz. They like it when it's absorbed into other musical styles. And absorbing other musical styles is a very important part of that, of jazz to begin with. In his great The History of Jazz, Ted Joya mentions that, that the accomplished New Orleans musician uh, in the sort of pre-jazz era of the 1900s, early 1900 to 19 teens or so, would have to be fluent in various musical styles. He writes, the blurring of musical genres was central to the creation of jazz music. We see that, um, I think, in Louis Armstrong, who I think often approached the idea of jazz as a verb rather than as a noun. I think that he thought that um, jazz was something you did to a song rather than, um, than it had certain categories of its own. When you think about um, his re-recording of various songs and, and changing the context of them and making them challenging in a way that they weren't before, that really defines his musical output. For instance, like in 1930, Libby Holman had a 
a hit with Body and Soul, which was a which was a tune from a, a Broadway show, and it was very popular. It was the kind of whatever popular song of the day, not exactly a jazz tune. And then Louis Armstrong sort of reconfigures and redefines the song by doing that statement of the melody and then sort of changing the context of his composition as he goes along. And he makes that song a jazz song, and he brings it into the jazz repertoire such that it becomes a really, really important um, part of of jazz. So, for instance, later when um, Coleman Hawkins sort of reinvents jazz in 1939 and, and makes improvisation a much more central part of it, he does that in a recording session using the tune Body and Soul, and it becomes uh, 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 an important tune. That becomes an important tune for John Coltrane when he's sort of trying to redefine the purpose of the saxophone and the tonality of the saxophone um, in the 1950s when he records the song. So that sort of, uh, you know, taking a standard expectation and rechanging it, reconfiguring it is important to jazz. Um, and again, it's important to other musical styles as well, um, but it sort of shows the jazz influence on those other musical styles. For instance, uh, you might want to YouTube or Spotify Cool in the Gang's Wichita Lineman. They love the song. They honor it, um, and they do a, a jazz version of it. Of course, Glenn Campbell saw the sort of jazz elements of that song, too, when he does his great version of it and plays his great... Um, six-string bass solo on it. I think part of the challenge of jazz also is that, unlike maybe some other musical styles, it um, is a little bit, I don't know what you want to call it, unav more unavoidable for people that they will have to deal with the social context of the composition. If you listen to John Coltrane's Alabama, you're going to have to understand that it has to do with the 16th Street Baptist Church um, bombing. So I, I think that that's an important element of it. There's a, a fantastic story about this with Louis Armstrong by the professor Charles Black. He was a constitutional law scholar, and he worked um, with Thurgood Marshall on Brown versus Board of Education, became the chief um, brief writer on that and the constitutional law expert. He also wrote a book called Impeachment that became um, a, a, an important source for Americans to understand uh, the process of impeachment during Watergate, and he was also mentioned again in the recent impeachment trials of, of Donald Trump. But anyway, something that's interesting is Charles Black talks about how he grew up in, in Texas in the 1930s. He was... Um, he was I guess he says, you know, trained to be a white Southern racist in some ways. Um, and then he saw Louis Armstrong. Um, he has a really interesting essay on this that you can look up. It's called My Life with Louis Armstrong. And, and uh, he talks about Thurgood Marshall introducing him at a, at a uh, uh, commemorative event for Brown versus Board of Education a few years later. And he says, he introduced him, he says, and next over there is Charlie Black, a white man from Texas who's been with us all the way. And 
Charles Black talks about being transformed by seeing Louis Armstrong. Here's what he here's what he writes. He says he was the first genius I had ever seen. That may be a structural part of the process that led me to the Brown case. The moment of first being and knowing oneself to be in the presence of genius is a solemn moment. It is perhaps the moment of final and indelible perception of man's utter transcendence of all else created. It is impossible to overstate the significance of a 16-year-old southern boy seeing genius for the first time in a black in the form of Louis Armstrong. And I think that really Louis Armstrong um, was profoundly influential in changing the perception that the world had of the capabilities of African Americans. He was born poor. Duke Ellington said of him um, at his funeral, he says, Pops was born poor and he died rich and he didn't make any enemies along the way. I think that's a pretty um, fitting and moving tribute. Louis Armstrong was sometimes criticized during the civil rights era for not being more vocal about things, which I think is actually kind of really wrong. I mean, he, for instance, had a strong rebuke of Eisenhower when Eisenhower failed to send in troops to protect children trying to go to school in Little Rock in 1957. Um, One of the ways he responded to that was recording... um, re-recording the song Black and Blue, which is a song that he um, had recorded several times. He recorded it um, in 1930 originally. He recorded it in 1954 as a response to Brown versus Board of Education, and he recorded it again in 1957 as a response to Little Rock. And one of the things that Louis Armstrong would do with the song that was really significant is he changed the context of the song. It was originally a song about colorism, written from a black perspective for a black audience in a show called uh, Hot Chocolates that was written by his friend Fats Waller, the great, great Harlem piano player and composer. Generally, though, I would say that it was Louis Armstrong's game to simply do what it is I'm suggesting jazz does, which is to sort of just... uh, not directly fight the stereotype and allow it to be the expectation that you have and then completely overturn it by his performance and by his virtuosity. There's a a kind of... I I, I, I hate to even think about the song, but uh, Louis Armstrong did a song with Bing Crosby called Gone Fishing. Crosby didn't write the song, but... um, it's interesting because in the song, Bing Crosby is clearly Bing Crosby. The setup is they go to look for each other at each other's house, and they're not there because they've gone gone fishing. And then um, in the Bing Crosby version, you know, Bing, uh, Lewis says, where were you, you know, when I came by your house? And uh, Bing Crosby says things like... Um, Like, I, I'm a busy man, Louie. I got a lot of deals cooking. I was probably tied up at the studio. So in the song, Bing Crosby is clearly Bing Crosby. But when he's looking for Lewis, he says, 
You ain't working anymore. Your hoe is out in the sun. You left the row half done. You claim that hoeing ain't no fun. So Louis Armstrong is not transforming American culture and becoming one of the most recognizable living people in the world as he was in 1951. Um, he's a sharecropper, I guess, while Bing Crosby gets to be Bing Crosby. It's very telling that when asked about that song, people asked um, Lewis if he'd ever been to Bing Crosby's house, and he says, I've never been to a movie star's house. And I think that what he's saying is Bing Crosby's not a musician, he's a movie star. And we're not friends. He said that his friends never called him Louie. And I'm. some people did call him Louie. He said he always went by Lewis, as in, hello, Dolly, this is Lewis, Dolly. And uh, it's also true that most of his friends called him Pops, it seems. Um, but anyway, the song uh, was a gig. He had to do the song. He wasn't friends. If you want to see, uh, if you want to listen to the song about a sort of equal, interesting, compassionate, admiring interracial friendship with Louis Armstrong. That song is Rocking Chair that he did with his friend and fellow uh, member of the Louis Armstrong All-Stars, Jack T. Garden. That's what, that song is everything that God Fishing is not. I think in some ways jazz is no longer a living art form and it has become sort of academic and we go to the Lincoln Center Orchestra in the way that we went to other orchestras and symphonies in the past, and I think that, that that's fine. Um, but it's important to remember, too, that Louis Armstrong gave his final performance a few months after the Beatles gave their final performance, and they still seem to be somehow culturally relevant to young people. And jazz, in a way, doesn't. And I think that um, perhaps it's time to revisit jazz, even if we revisit it as history, because it's plugged into the world that we live in in some really important ways. And I think that if we simply learn the lessons of jazz, we'll learn the lessons of America in a profound way. And I think that in addition to that, it's not just an academic exercise. It's a beautiful music that can bring you joy. There's a tremendous amount of joy in it. I think ultimately what I love about jazz so much is just how American it is. It seems to be the best of what America offers. I think that Louis Armstrong's ascent to world fame and uh, cultural significance really is Jefferson's vision of the best of us rising up regardless of our origin. I also love how democratic it is. Um, everyone gets their turn. Everyone takes their solo. It also sort of demonstrates virtue. We can see who's better. It's a kind of competition in a way that I think is, is good. And I hope that it can remind us that all Americans are Americans and celebrating the achievement of anyone is celebrating the achievement of us all. And we need to really, really find a way to be less divided right now. And jazz, I think, provides a model 
through that and it persevered with that model through some really, really hard times and made those hard times in the end beautiful.